Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Good morning. Today is the day. This is the day the Lord has made. It is Monday. Monday, Monday, Monday. I don't know about you. I I kind I love Monday. Um in part because I have, you know, spent a couple of days uh, not having the opportunity to talk with you and visit with you and um uh, discuss how the word of God can be brought to bear in our lives. Um but I also just love the fresh new opportunity to kind of get after it in terms of uh, feeling like I just am, I, I'm more diligent about applying. Maybe this is a confession that is you're thinking to yourself, Carmen should be applying herself on the weekends as, as aggressively as she is applying herself in the middle of the week. But I will say that um, every Monday brings sort of a, this reset opportunity to kind of refocus my energy positively in in the direction of the world, because Sunday I very intentionally spend like as intensely as possible um, focused on Sabbath. And Sabbath isn't just about rest. Sabbath is about everything that is good. So that which is intrinsically good is what Sabbath is focused on. And so it's focused on worship. It's focused on um, family. It's focused on the delight of downtime, but also the delight of purposeful engagement that's not necessarily like work in terms of vocation. And so there you go. There's my there's my Sabbath pitch. Yes, it is it is a uh, a holy setting aside of time and a holy setting aside of self in order to focus intentionally on who God is, what God has done, what God is doing, how I need to yield more fully to him and engage more purposely for him. And then Monday comes and I'm like, "Hoo-hoo, let's go." So, how are you um how did you reset yesterday? Did you have a Sabbath. And if you did not have a Sabbath yesterday, when are you going to intentionally have some Sabbath this week? Uh, it, it's not, you know, it, it, don't say, well, I'll have a Sabbath next Sunday. No, 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 no. Um, when are you going to have some intentional Sabbath? Maybe it is brief. That's okay. But when are you going to have some intentional Sabbath? which is not just rest, it is that which is restorative. It is that which is which is a reset. Um, it is that which helps us resist. It is that which, there's all kinds of words related to it that you can plug in here. When are you going to have some intentional Sabbath with the Lord um, this week? If you didn't get it yesterday, if you did not, if you were not able to do that yesterday, when are you going to make that happen? Um, I remember hearing um, um, a pastor talk once about... Uh, right out of seminary, um, saying that he and his wife intentionally made Monday their Sabbath, and they would like literally leave the house, leave the place where, you know, the church was located. Because for them, they had to like physically get away from the the location in order to force themselves to take a walk in the country 
and read the scriptures and have some silent time and share a meal that was not consumed by, you know, the news of the day or the concerns of the church specifically for them because that was their labor, their place of labor. So anyway, so that's my encouragement to you. Find um, find some Sabbath time um, and find some Sabbath experiences so that you can reset for this week. All right, next up, Bill Federer is going to be here from An American Minute. He and I are going to talk about Veterans Day. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Welcome back. Thrilled to be joined again today by Bill Federer. You know him from uh, An American Minute. You can follow him on Facebook. Actually, go to his Facebook page for all the great links to find him at William J. Federer. You can also go directly to AmericanMinute.com. Bill, welcome back. It's great to be with you. So you always help us see um, American history in in a Christian, you know, not only just through a Christian lens, but honestly, as as people who need to understand our own history. So let's talk today about Veterans Day. And I think that starts with our understanding Armistice Day on the 11th day of the 11th month, 1918. What was going on? Well, it was World War One, And the, it's often overlooked how many millions of people died. They estimate 60 million people worldwide were involved in this. And uh, the casualties are in the tens of millions on both sides. Um, one of the reasons there was a lot of disease that was spreading. And uh, and then the also, uh, also is important is to realize that half of World War I took place in the Middle East. So the background is uh, Winston Churchill changed the British Navy from coal to oil. So in the 1800s, oil came from whales <laughs> and the poor whales were being chased to, to extinction, you know, Moby Dick and everything. And so in 1859, oil was discovered in Pennsylvania, uh, the Drake oil well, and then in Oklahoma, and then in Baghdad and over in the Middle East. And so Britain started a Anglo-Iranian oil company in 1908. And they later changed the name to British Petroleum, or BP. So BP is really the Anglo-Iranian oil company that goes back to 1908. Well, Germany is industrializing, and they have Kaiser Wilhelm, and he is producing all kinds of armaments and submarines, but he needs oil. So he does a deal with the Sultan and uh, of Turkey, and they begin the Berlin-Baghdad Railroad. And so now you have Iran or Persia siding with Britain and the Ottoman Empire, the Turks, siding with the Germans. Well, the war starts, and again, half of it took place in the Middle East. I like to point out to people that after the war, the map of Europe was redrawn and the map of the Middle East was redrawn. And what used to be the Ottoman Empire now became the countries of Iraq, Iran, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, Egypt, and Israel. The situation was uh, there was a British lieutenant named 
Lawrence, and he was sent to see if the Arab Muslims could work with the British to fight the Turkish Muslims. And Lawrence of Arabia took it upon himself not just to report back, but he promised the Arabs that if they would help the British, they would get all the land in the Middle East. And afterwards, he admitted he lied to him. He said, I risked the fraud on my conviction that the Arab help was needed for our quick and speedy victory in the Middle East, and better we win and break our word than lose. But why is this important? Well, the Palestinians today use Lawrence of Arabia's uh, unauthorized promise as the basis of them saying, well, we should get the land in the Middle East. Uh, another piece of the puzzle is well, let's during pause World there. Let's just yes. pause there for a second and let's recognize the importance of what you're saying. I, I, I feel fairly confident, Bill, that most people listening right now, they have not understood the connection between what is happening today with those who have uh, I- ideas related to an Islamic state or those in Iran who have uh, a different approach um, in terms of what we consider the exporting of terrorism, um, but what they all consider as our intrusion into um, places and spaces that belong to them. And we've now been there for 100 years, and they're not happy about it. Yeah, so it's interesting. When these new countries were formed, they all loved the West. And why? Because it was Britain and America that put them into their kingdoms. So it was Mm. basically Britain that put King Fazl in charge of Iraq, and Britain put King Abdullah in charge of Jordan. So they all were looking to the West as the future. Uh, They had camels and, and mountains of sand, and the West had airplanes and telephones and automobiles. So all these countries got secular leaders that loved the West. And you had Ataturk in Turkey wanted to secularize his country, get rid of the fezes and the burkas and the calls to prayer in the Arabic language. He's the first one to educate women. He says, uh, Mohammedism may have suited tribes in the desert. It's no good for a modern progressive state. And so we see that all the Middle East, you had beauty pageants in Syria. You, um, you know, had... Uh, Oh, what? Cairo, Egypt. You see the pictures in the 1960s. Uh, they're along the beach in swimming suits. It looks like Southern California and the Beach Boys. And um, Very different you know, Nas- today. Yeah. And so what happened was Standard Oil Company in 1938 discovers oil in Saudi Arabia. And Saudi Arabia was the most backwards, violent, Wahhabi country in the, the Middle East. But all of a sudden, once oil is discovered in 1938, Saudi Arabia goes from the poorest Muslim country to the richest. They begin to become a magnet for fundamentalism because they have in Arabia, they have Mecca, which is where the Hajj is. And so Muslims are making pilgrimages. And instead of getting a more peaceful version of Islam, they're getting infected with this Wahhabism. And even Lawrence of Arabia said Wahhabism is a Muslim heresy. Everything is puritanical and everything is forcibly, you know, submission and Saudi situation was they used a lot of their oil money to finance Wahhabism. And this Wahhabism is what spurned off every single fundamentalist group, the Boko Haram, the Taliban, the Al-Qaeda, the Muslim Brotherhood. 
let's pause there, and when we come back, maybe um, maybe we reset and we uh, we're t- return our. I know I took us down that rabbit trail, so thank you for going there with me. But um, when we come back, let's return to a conversation about Veterans Day. Let's talk about the history of it here in the United States, and then let's talk about um, let's talk about it today. So I am talking with Bill Federer. You know him from uh, the American Minute, and we'll be right back. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. Continuing my conversation now with Bill Federer. Uh, You can find him at AmericanMinute.com. You can also find him on Facebook at William J. Federer. All right, Bill, let's um, let's reset our conversation and let's return to the subject of Veterans Day. so we have Armistice Day uh, that is really the um, the ignition of Veterans Day. So let's talk about Armistice Day and then let's talk about the development of Veterans Day. Right. So uh, the Great War, the World War One, started in 1914, uh, but it was not until 1918 that the United States entered the war. And uh, I actually had a grandfather that fought over there. During this time, the Lusitania was an American ship. And uh, it was blown up on its way to Europe by the Germans. And so this is what got us. This was sort of the Pearl Harbor of World War One. was the sinking of the Lusitania in uh, 1915. And so we enter the war. Uh, millions of our soldiers go over there. There's some great stories that I write about <clears throat> in the book, Miracles in American History. One of them is Sergeant Alvin York, where his squadron is pinned down and everyone's killed except him and he is a sharpshooter from the Kentucky, Tennessee backwoods, and he starts picking off these German machine gun nests and so good that they'll keep their heads down. So he makes turkey calls, so they lift their head up to see what's going on, and he shoots them again. He captures 132 Germans uh, single-handedly, and he gets the Congressional Medal of Honor. Uh, this is when um, George Cohen writes the song, Over There, Over There, Send the Word, Send the Word, Over There, that the Yanks are coming. Uh, Woodrow Wilson He has a day of fasting and prayer. It's the last official presidential day of fasting and prayer. We have um, other presidents after him have had days of prayer, but he actually had days of fasting and prayer. He gives out New Testaments to all the soldiers in World War I. So the war ends on November 11th. And the sad part was that it actually ended at 5 a.m. on November 11th. 11th, 1918. But they decided to set the official end at 11 a.m. So they all meet at 5 a.m. and sign it, but they say, well, let's end it at 11 a.m. So it's 11 a.m. on November 11th, 1918. Well, in that uh, hours between 5 a.m. and 11 a.m., another 11,000 soldiers die. They're like, okay, quick, let's get some more land so we can, you know, negotiate better later. Mm. Well, after the war, Warren G. Harding is president in 1921, and he has a soldier from World War I uh, and brought over and put in the tomb of the unknown soldier. And it says on the side, here rests in honor, glory, an American soldier known but to God. Calvin Coolidge gives a great speech uh, talking about how uh, the veterans. So Veterans Day is to honor those that are still alive. Uh, Memorial Day is to honor those who have died. Calvin Coolidge says, uh, America has dedicated itself to the service of God and man. Douglas MacArthur uh, tells West Point candidates, the soldier above all other men is required to practice the greatest act of religious training, sacrifice. 
in battle in the face of danger and death. He discloses those divine attributes which makes which his maker gave when he created man in his own image. And 1954, Eisenhower puts a soldier in the tomb from World War II. Then we go for a little time, and Reagan put a soldier in there from Vietnam. Eisenhower also put a soldier in from the Korean War. But it's the symbolism that these were men, representing men and women, who gave their lives uh, in the highest sacrifice to preserve our freedom. Uh, so it was called uh, Armistice Day, uh, like a you know ceasefire, but later in 1954 it was changed to uh, Veterans Day. Let's, in, the, in the couple of minutes that we have left, Bill, let's talk about why Eisenhower is such a, um, a key figure in our conversation related to Veterans Day. Why, why is he one who speaks with real authority on this topic? Well, he was the Supreme Allied Commander during World War II. He comes back and he becomes the 34th president. And he has a back-to-God program with the American Legion. And could you imagine a president having <laughs> a back-to-God program? And, of course, the American Legion uh, motto is, you know, for God and country. And uh, so February 7, 1954, Eisenhower says, as a former soldier, I'm delighted that our veterans are sponsoring a movement to increase the awareness our awareness of God in our daily lives. In battle, they learned a great truth that there are no atheists in the foxholes. They know that in time of test and trial, we instinctively turn to God with, for new courage and peace of mind. Um, now, Eisenhower is also the one that put in God we trust on our paper currency. And he's also the one that added the phrase under God to the Pledge of Allegiance. And um, But Eisenhower goes on. Uh, the next year, he gives another address uh, in 1955 for the Back to God program. He says, um, the founding fathers expressed in word for all to read the ideal of government based upon the dignity of the individual. Uh, He goes on, they recognizing God as the author of individual rights declared that the purpose of government is to secure those rights. And, And that's a pretty big deal because without God, Government claims to be the source of the rights, and what the government giveth, the government can taketh awayeth. So this is what Eisenhower said. In many lands, the state claims to be the author of human rights. The tragedy of that claim runs through all of history and indeed dominates our own times. If the state gives rights, it can and inevitably will take away those rights. Without God, there could be no American form of government nor way of life. Recognition of the supreme being is the first, the most basic expression of Americanism. I love that. Here's this President Eisenhower saying, look, the, the most basic expression of Americanism is believing in the supreme being. Why? Because we have rights from the supreme being. If there's no God, there's no supreme being. Rights come from the government. And what the government giveth, the government taketh away. So our founding fathers had to refer to the creator. And um, but that's why uh, Eisenhower, he's the beginning of the Cold War with the, with communism and the communism's flat out said there's no creator. It's all evolution. You're all an accident. The state is the highest expression of humanity. So your greatest purpose in life is to serve the state. And um, so, Bill, we're going to have to leave it right there. Um, and I just think that today our encouragement, Bill Federer and I are just going to encourage everybody who's listening today to be sure you thank a veteran. Actually, take time today to thank a veteran. Um, they have done for us in defending democracy here and around the world, they have done for us um, something for which we can just re- really never show 
sufficient gratitude. But let's be sure today um, that we recognize what today is all about uh, and to God alone be the glory, but also to our veterans be uh, deep, deep uh, gratitude. Bill Federer, thank you so much for being with us today on Mornings with Carmen. Thank you, Carmen. We'll be right back. What has your uh, heart today? I have a friend who um, posted a picture over the weekend of uh, her her daughter, and her daughter is like just now walking. And so the picture is from the back, and the, the little girl is walking, uh, and, and it's in a park, and you can see a crowd of people, right, you know, further in the distance on the, I mean, quote-unquote, on the horizon of the picture. And um, she... Uh, she just said, there goes my heart. And it reminded me of the time that my sister, when her now oldest, I mean, Mia is now 16, but when Mia was just literally toddling like that and they went to um, like an Easter egg hunt and she said, you know, I, I, my heart is walking around on the outside of my body and it's walking like she's walking away from me. She's attracted by the things that she is now seeking out there in the world. There goes my heart. My heart is walking, walking away from me. Um, who has your heart today? Is it a child? Is it a grandchild? Is it um, somebody out there in the world who, you know, they're not necessarily walking away from you, but they are walking away from God and your heart aches for them. Uh, I spent some time this weekend with Judy Douglas and was reminded of the beautiful conversation we had about her book, about those of us who love prodigals. So you might want to check that out on the podcast um, as well. All right. Up next, David Aikman is going to be here with me. He is the editor of Godspeed Magazine. He and I are going to talk about uh, all kinds of things going on around the world, including the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Mom, Dad, do you know how to connect with your teenager? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Now, I don't mean asking them if they've had a good day or talking about how things are going at school. I mean truly connecting with the heart of your teen. They're two entirely different things. So if you're at a loss on where to start, just try asking questions. Don't drill for information, but aim to discover how they think and what matters to them. Then be sure to listen. Remember, you want to talk with them, not at them. And finally, keep your opinion to yourself, even when you disagree. It may take practice, but your teen will appreciate your efforts to make connection and relationship a top priority. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Find books and other resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. My name is Bond, James Bond. So each week we like to uh, talk with Dr. David Aikman from Godspeed Magazine because he has this genuinely global and wonderfully historic perspective on things that are happening around the world. So, David, welcome back. Thank you very much, Tom. It's good to be on the program again. So I am tempted to um, sort of pitch a bunch of things out there, like um, uh, the fact that today is Armistice Day, here Veterans Day, there Remembrance Day, um, and somehow weave together a conversation related to um, that reality and then what we experience happening um, today with 
NATO allied countries and um, and then also the conversation about the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. I just feel like there are probably connections in there in terms of conversation that you see, threads that you could pull that others may not see. Well, I hope so. Um, certainly, uh, I have quite a lot to say about the um, fall of the Berlin Wall in 2089 because that was followed by the collapse of the communist regime in Czechoslovakia under Václav Havel, and I was there when that occurred. So I wasn't in Berlin, but I was in Eastern Europe, the beginning of the whole meltdown of communist regime, and it was an incredibly interesting and even inspiring time to be there. So let's talk about that, because I think that, you know, for many of us, you know, for many of us, we... um... We're consumed by whatever is happening in our most local environment today. And we sometimes forget that there are some megatrends that happen. um, And we may be in the midst of one now, but it's hard to see it when you're in the midst of it. A little bit easier to see it when you have the perspective of some history to say, okay, this is what was going on. And I can describe it as something that was bigger than one event in one place. So we were all fixated on the fall of the Berlin Wall, but it was about much more than just that wall in that place. Well, it was because the uh, Eastern Europe had started to crumble away from communism as soon as Gorbachev came to power in 1985 in the Soviet Union. And one of the first decisions he had to make was to go around the capitals of Eastern Europe and say to the leaders there, Look, guys, if the population rises up against you, please don't expect the Soviet army to come in with tanks because we're not going to do that. And that was an incredibly important signal, quickly telegraphed to everybody of political interest in all of those countries. And so you had a gradual crumbling. Um, On May the 4th, you had an. a Polish prime minister elected who was not a member of the Communist Party. That was absolutely unprecedented. And, of course, May the 4th, unfortunately, um, you know, was just a month before the June 4th uh, collapse in Beijing with the crackdown on the democracy there. But East Germany had been crumbling for weeks before that. So, for example, trains had been coming to East European capitals to take back to West Germany East Germans who had camped out around West German embassies in Eastern European cities. And so that was already the sign that something was really going south in East Germany. And then, of course, the collapse of the wall on November 9th um, was almost a decision, a decision made by accident because the fellow who announced that the restrictions would be lifted said that that would happen immediately. And that set in motion the incredible uh, tide of people running up to the wall, trying to get to the barricades and get over to the West. And that set the whole thing off. And it was a tidal wave of different events 
leading up to the final event, which was the collapse of the Ceausescu dictatorship in Romania in December uh, 1989. So it was about six months of concentrated turmoil in the communist regimes leading to the collapse of all of them. And then, David, when we think about the way that in those places, um, a new government, a new way of of being a people together, as as those emerged, because most of us were not paying close enough attention to be able to to look back now and say this took some time. Um, it's still in some places mostly an experiment. Um, Talk with us about that, because I think that we have the expectation now that let's just say Yemen. Let's say so Yemen's a failed state. They've they have uh, potentially, you know, potentially there is a peace accord that has now been signed. That would mean that the, you know, the proxy actors might get out of the way. But that entire state is going to have to be rebuilt. Um, they are going to have to find uh, amongst themselves a will that is, you know, the to create a government. That is that is actually true in a lot of places today. We see Bolivia, that well, happening. We see that desire in Venezuela. I mean, on and on and on. So describe to us how it happened in Eastern Europe after the fall of communism. Well, I'll give you one anecdote that absolutely explains the whole thing. First of all, generalization one, the collapse of communism was a moral revolution before it was a political revolution. Mm. I remember a speech, uh, actually witnesses as an eyewitness by Václav Havel, who became the president of the most of the post-communist Czech Republic. And he said, when we come to power, we must not chase the communists under the bed and do a witch hunt for the people who persecuted us. But then there was a pause, and without any orchestration, the crowd suddenly responded, we are not like them. We mm. are not like And that was a recognition by everybody that a completely new moral order had come to pass, that the Czech Republic, as it now became, was going to join the mainstream of Western European history from which it had been separated since the Czech Revolution in 1948. So that was an astonishing sense of a tectonic shift in moral and political realities. That is so significant um, because we don't often see the kind of moral leadership you're describing, and we don't necessarily have in some of the places today a, the kind of moral heritage that you are talking about which can be drawn upon and revived and then come to live in a new way, in a new expression, in a new day. Um, David, you well, and I need to take a break. When we come back, okay. can we can we pivot slightly to a conversation about yeah. NATO, its importance, yeah. and then um, maybe Turkey specifically as one member of the NATO uh, alliance? We'll be right back. We're talking with wow. David Aikman from Godspeed Magazine. Continuing my conversation with Dr. David Aikman from Godspeed Magazine. David, let's talk about NATO. Lots of headlines related to uh, related to NATO, related to its importance, its right. viability. Um, 
And right. I'm aware that President Erdogan of Turkey is due to be in the White House here in the United States of America this week. Um, right. Ro- roam around a little bit in what's going on uh, with NATO and remind people why it matters. Well, first of all, NATO was formed in 1949 after the Berlin blockade and then the Berlin airlift. And the reason was that people realized that the main danger to peace in Europe was the threat of a Soviet invasion from the East with all of the Soviet allies uh, following uh, the Russian lead. And so NATO became a very effective um, deterrent to any possible attack from Soviet-led forces from the East. And I would say it has been historically one of the most effective defensive alliances in the whole of history. Now, there were problems with the French from 1966 to 2009. The French absented themselves from NATO combined operations. General de Gaulle was very critical. And now President Macron has started a public criticism of NATO as being brain dead because he doesn't think President Trump of the United States is really committed to NATO. Macron of France was immediately criticized by the president of Poland, who said NATO is absolutely essential. The Americans are spending far more than everybody else. And President Trump is perfectly right to criticize those NATO members who don't spend up to 2% of their GDP on defense, which only a few countries do. I mean, Britain is one of them. And, of course, the United States is the mainstay of NATO, and NATO would crumble if the United States were not involved. So it's a very delicate system. And now, of course, with the situation of Turkey, there are all kinds of other issues. Turkey has bought from the Russians a um, missile defense system against aircraft that would be very dangerous to NATO aircraft. So people are wondering whether Turkey is a reliable member of NATO. So there are a lot of questions spinning around uh, in the discussion about NATO's future. And then we have um, this visit this week by President Erdogan, well, scheduled visit, we'll see, uh, President Erdogan to the White House. Um, Anything you want to add about Turkey as we are preparing to host a person who, frankly, I find pretty reprehensible? Yeah, I think Turkey is not led by a leader who is um, top of the list of uh, democratic uh, constitutional leaders anywhere in the world. Um, he's an Islamist. He is slowly trying to de-secularize the Turkish society. Turkey's success under Ataturk and his followers was um, possible because Turkey became a determinately secular society, a country that refused to nail its flag to the, 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 the mast of Islam. Under Erdogan, has been steadily drifting back towards Islam, 
the schools, the, the universities become Islamicized in a rather dangerous way. So people are really wondering whether Turkey is going to be a reliable NATO partner. And it remains to be seen how Erdogan succeeds in the White House. I think he'll probably be okay because the U.S. has not absolutely responded negatively to uh, the Turkish invasion of Syria, but it will be a close-run thing to see what happens at the end of the uh, meeting. So we've got about a minute uh, a minute left. Um, I know that you and I like to pay close attention and follow the story uh, that is un- continues to unfold in Hong Kong. Um, and right. it, sound, it sounds as if the protests over this weekend um, were were very, very, uh, I mean, well, the, the police responded by live fire shooting at protesters. So right. um, sure. uh, pick, pick up for us where you think we are today in relationship to what's going on in Hong Kong um, and maybe some direction in how uh, how folks around the world could be responding. Well, you have to realize that we're now into the 22nd or 23rd week of protests that started way back on June 9. And at first, they were very peaceful. They were very numerous. But then the police began to use tear gas and stun grenades. Then they started using rubber bullets. Then the protesters got violent. I mean, it's a question of who got violent first. But anyway, some of the protesters are so determined to risk this this encroachment by Beijing over Hong Kong's political and civic autonomy that they're literally prepared to die. And this is a very disturbing development, and it could indeed lead to bloodshed if those um, commitments uh, are followed through. And we, we have to watch the Hong Kong situation very carefully from week to week. Absolutely. All right, David, you and I probably have to leave it right there today. David Aikman from Godspeed Magazine helping us have, you know, not just Christ's perspective on the events that are happening on globally, but he also helps us to have a tremendously well-connected historical perspective, uh, a, a Western civilization perspective on the things that are happening around the world. So, David, thank you, as always, for helping us make those connections here on Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so much for inviting me on the program. Really appreciate it. All right, friends, let's take one more quick break, and then we'll be right back. So just to add one more um, storyline to the conversation coming out of of Turkey, um, there's a there's a gentleman named James uh, Le Messieur. He, um, he really is credited with starting the White Helmets. He's a former British Army intelligence officer. He has been honored by the Queen of England for uh, his work with the White Helmets, which is the civil defense group in Syria. Um, his office is in Istanbul, Turkey. Um, and this and this morning um, he was discovered uh, dead on the street outside of his office. We don't have a lot of details related to that, but this is a person who was working for the United Nations. This is a person working in that region of the world for peace and um, on uh, on on the part of humanity um, worldwide. So let's be praying for his family today, uh, and let's also be praying for peace, 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 peace on this Veterans Day. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great day. God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. 
If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.